of Problem Busters. And uh, it's been a little while between drinks, John. It has. It has. It's been, it's been <laughs> I say a little while. It's probably been a long while since we've, uh, since we've uh, got the group back together, eh? I feel like a... That's the thing about the passion project, though, isn't yeah. it? You've got a, a, a little one and and uh, three mouths to feed and plenty going oh, on. Crikey. And Don't uh, remind me. <laughs> as, ha- as have I. Yeah, so I think... But it's good to be it back. Is, it is. And it's good to have a little break so we can come back refreshed and new. So, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, who do we have on, actually, to, you know, for our grand uh, reunion? <laughs> Indeed. So, today we have Seneth Demel. And is that the first time I've ever got your name right, Seneth? It might be, right? Yes. <laughs> well, no. You never said my surname in the past, but uh, you always got my name right. <laughs> Autocorrect um, doesn't like yeah. Seneth, and uh, and I, I apologise on behalf of Autocorrect. Um, so, so welcome to the show, and thank you for for joining us to talk about um, your experience of living in Italy and fundraising and being in Kiev at a time that a lot of people would rather not be in Kiev but for very good reasons. So welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Good. So um, so, t- so we generally start off with a little bit about you. Um, so do you want to give us a little bit of a background, countries, major industries, and bringing you yeah, through sure, to here? Sure. So I am uh, from the UK, uh, but originally uh, immigrated. My father immigrated from Sri Lanka in the 1960s, and I was born in the, in the 70s and grew up and spent most of my life in Okay. Though some of it I was, uh, I spent in Sri Lanka, but mostly in the UK, and uh, made a, a career, a life for myself out there. I've, I've been an IT worker since uh, 2000, year 2000. Before that, I was a car mechanic, so uh, the pay is substantially higher in IT, and you get to keep your hands clean and sit down most of the day, so it's not so bad. Uh, it's I important to have that, clear goals for what you want out of your career, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that, that started in 2000 when I was working in, uh, really it was a combination of application de- delivery, IT security, networking, the uh, very early days of IT really. It was just as things were getting maturer. There was still very, um, just after the dot com bubble burst. It was still very much um, the Wild West <laughs> at that point in IT. Crazy stuff happened. People turning up for work drunk and stuff. Not me, <laughs> but still. Uh, people snoring, doing corporate events. Uh, You're not helping my uh, family's opinion of what it's like to work in tech. But, uh, <laughs> that was 20, 22 years ago. And then the world evolved, and I, I moved into an area which was not very well understood, uh, that bridge between networking applications, which is application delivery. That's the thing. That enables us to make these calls and nothing fails. It always works because it's highly available, global server load balance and that kind of stuff. And then the world changed again and I moved um, sometime around 2014. Um, I was working in cloud, uh, public, private, and then I got interested in blockchain technology. So I invested in it quite early and then the world's moved on again, and now there's jobs for people like me to sell this technology which has been built. Sometime around, I mean, about five, six years ago, I 
made the decision to move out to Italy because my work was becoming increasingly remote and I became a digital nomad and moved out to um, a lovely Italian mountain village in the Dolomites called Ecol and spent half my time there. But I I was and I still am living in Ukraine. So I've been living here on and off for about 10 years. I rotate my time between the UK a little bit um, sometime in Italy, maybe three months, and then two, three months in Ukraine, and maybe back to Italy, maybe back to the UK. So I'm really that um, proper digital nomad, but not um, a complete nomad. It was fixed point, point to point, get too old, the suitcase gets heavier as you get older. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 pretty much a summary of my background. And um, so why why I, Ukraine? What uh, what drew you mm. to Kiev and and you know I have to I have to point out that I think for a lot of people, especially people down under, Kiev, placing it in the right country wouldn't have been so easy before the conflict, you know, before it was in the news. Yeah, um, it's a really good. It was an emotional thing, maybe not a logical thing, but there is logic to it as well. I am. I'm westernized heavily, but there's a part of my background that is also eastern. Yeah. And I never quite fitted into the UK because some of the ways of life there were just different to mine. Uh, I, I found it, um, there's no criticism of the UK, but for me, it was getting increasingly uh, sterile, a little bit controlled, lots and lots and lots of rules, political correctness <laughs> being one of them. And, I wanted a place in Europe that was a little bit more, um, I felt more at home here, more at home with the people. I just aligned with them more. A lot of their struggles, their history is similar to, to my history. And I just felt much more at home here. So it's mainly the reason. Totally. But it, yeah. Yeah. But it is also a wonderful place. Ukraine and the life here can be very beautiful. This is me making space for Jonathan. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Bit of rust, eh? Bit of rust, bit of rust. <laughs> so in terms of your... I'm, walking, I'm working on talking too yeah, much. No, no, so. it's fine. It's fine. I, 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 kind of prefer, I, I kind of like it, actually. Um, in terms of that kind of digital nomad um, kind of lifestyle, what first attracted you to it? to be honest, because I know there's been a lot of sort of changes in, in um, well, I say Brexit is probably one of the main ones as well, um, because um, yeah. a lot of our listeners are outside of IT. I don't think they understand how spread out um, sort of teams are in, in the IT business and, and their different locations. And especially in the part of the world that you are in now, there are a lot of companies out there that offer a lot of outsourcing solutions and stuff. So what, 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 what attracted you to the kind of digital nomad uh, lifestyle? Yeah, actually that's really a, a really good question because there are the answer to that is could span over, over 10 years, 12 years. A lot of my career and a lot of the early IT industry was moving around customer meetings. So you used to turn up in the 2000s and early 2010s in a shirt and tie. And you drive like five hours to spend an hour with a customer and give them the presentation and, and it just, <laughs> and just skew your product all over them. Yeah. <laughs> and then leave. And that is exhausting. But in those days, it was like I was early thirties. So it didn't really matter. 
Then I moved roles to become an EMEA engineer sometime in 2010. So from 2007, no, 2007 till around 2016, I was living pretty much out of a suitcase. And I would spend maybe five days at home in the month. And it was great. It was wonderful. I love seeing it. But towards the end of that decade well, that was doing it, it got really, really tiresome. That also coincides with me getting older. Uh, the suitcase getting heavier. <laughs> and just and uh, people doing things online, video conferencing was very, very common. Even though companies like Cisco had invented these technologies and they were really, really working very, very well, people didn't do it by default until COVID came along. COVID came along and uh, it just had to stop. All of it stopped. And then new companies emerged in the blockchain space in particular, more than any other industry that I see. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my vision might be narrow here, but I saw that blockchain was the industry that adopted remote first working as uh, by default. Mm -hmm. uh, then it became so much easier to do your job than behind the desk. You can have many, many more meetings in a day, be much, much more productive, but yet have um, a reasonably good quality of life over just traveling all the time. So you don't always meet your colleagues and you don't always go to an office, though it is nice to from time to time. Paint yeah. us a picture of uh, of this this village in Italy. Like, you know, when you walk outside, what do you see? Um, you see two big, well, I see the coffee shop. <laughs> you came to visit, you, you look out and you see Monte Palmo, which is a stunning, it looks like a giant tooth, actually. Uh, and it's a dolomite, so it's different, uh, different rock to what you would, uh, than the Alps. So it wasn't formed by magma. So if you imagine, um, uh, when India hit China, it created that peak, which is the Himalayas. But it also um, created a plateau and raised the land up behind it, which is called Tibet. The same thing happened um, when Africa hit Europe. It created the Alps. and But it also lifted up a plateau in certain areas, um, one of them being the Dolomites. And the Dolomites just happened to be an ancient coral reef, 500 million years old. So that is calcified rock. Basically, it was alive at one point. It looks very different. It has different colours at sunset, sunrise. So you walk out the door to answer your question. You see Monte Palmo, and you just like go, your jaw drops. If you pick that up, you know, and walk another ten meters, you see Monte Civetta, yeah, which is like this big panoramic mountain, completely different look. And then you have to pause, take a break, and then make your way to the coffee shop, which has the most delightful coffee on earth, priced at one pound ten. Wow. Yeah. Do you want to just I explain for people that. that haven't been to Italy the the coffee culture and what kind of coffee you have in the morning and what coffee you have after lunch? Yeah, I think you have cappuccino in the morning and you have espresso after lunch. Absolutely. But I'm very specific. I always, all the cafes here in Kiev and wherever I go end up knowing what I want <laughs> because I, uh, I have a cappuccino. Cafe Americano with some cold milk uh, on the side. So one of my friends in Kiev is a screenwriter. They they did this um, story TV series in Kiev about a racing driver who happened to like Cafe Americano with cold milk because they got the idea from from me. So Amazing. in Italy they call it in, in the cafes I go to they call it Cafe Sanif. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's brilliant. And thanks for the Dolomite story. I was absolutely spellbound, John. <laughs> oh, no. A coral oh, reef, yeah. like thousands UK, of meters yeah. up. I was like, what? So when I'm in the city in the UK, I may grab a, a paper cup and with a plastic lid. It's huge and it's often right £3.50 these days. And it tastes like a hot cup of milk with some brown stuff in there. Right. And you, and you're running to get the train or, or, or something or whatever, get back to your, your desk. Whereas in Italy, everything slows down. Uh, the way of life is naturally a lot slower. And, uh, especially, I mean, especially the mountains and coffee becomes, when you go to a cafe, everyone's talking to each other. And I'm the only idiot that's on a mobile phone texting. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone else has their, their, their phone put away. Uh, and just enjoying what's in front of them. Yeah, it's a very different cafe culture to what we have in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, and no chains. Uh, so you don't get Costas or, or Nero's and all these other things. They're all independents, which is wonderful until you want to stand and you don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 You want seamless customer service no matter what, no matter where you are in Italy. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a much more, um, there's a much more even power balance between customer and owner of restaurant, isn't there? Compared to the oh. sort of the, the Western traditional idea of customer is always right. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you go to, there's some restaurants in the valley, like we, I call it the valley because it's a mountain valley. It's small, um, very local, very few tourists. Uh, there are restaurants you go to where you don't order food. If you go in there, you're going to get served what they cook oh, that wow. day. It's really refreshing. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's um what problem are we going to be talking about, Dustin John? I think we're going to be talking about how uh Sanaf is um doing some I mean it's a mix of a lot of bravery, right? Um <laughs> a lot of self sacrifice. Um and yeah, I mean I, I think I'll I'll let him sort of uh, explain what what he's doing, but uh, yeah, I think I think um, I think it's amazing, especially when it involves a, a modified uh, Mitsubishi. <laughs> so yeah, so um, Sano, so how could you just run us through how you how you ended up sort of delivering supplies into Kiev? Um, you know, in in this, it's yeah. it's actually I had to deliver the supplies into the oh, Donbass. Sorry, in the Donbass. Oh, yes, sorry, sorry. You was, yes, yeah, right into yeah. the heart of it. So. My first stop was Kiev to sleep and then wake up and get going. Uh, when the war broke, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a very personal story um, about it. When the war broke out on the 24th of February, um, I was in Italy and I was overcome by emotion. And I'm not an emotional guy in that sense. Um, I felt crushed and shocked that everyone, feel, everyone felt it at that moment, actually. And I didn't know what to do. Um, and I'm a very self-assured, very confident, very, and I know what I want. So I was very, very confused. Um, I'm male. I'm of fighting age. I'm capable. So it was definitely my thought whether I should join the fight, but I don't speak Ukrainian or Russian particularly well. I speak it like a British person speaks like, which is particularly bad. <laughs> I'll go like, yeah, I expect everyone to come to me. So that arrogance was never really working out in this situation. But for the most part, we get away with it. So anyway, I was, I didn't know what to do and I had to help. 
and my life in Ukraine was um, so over here. The, the agriculture is amazing. There. We in the UK we have topsoil that's maybe thirty centimeters deep if we're lucky. You know, often it's much less than that. So things grow and they grow well, but not like in Ukraine because you talk talk about topsoil that is meters deep, and the richest soil in on the planet, which is you probably heard about this counteroffensive. That's what everyone's waiting for. They wait for the ground to dry because mud is so deep. <laughs> it takes ages before you get to rocky surf a rocky surface. So, um, what that translates to is amazing quality food, full of nutrition. And uh, on our Western salaries, and as an IT worker, it's very, very affordable for me to eat out in restaurants two or three times a day, and it doesn't really affect you. And so, my life in the UK, in, in Ukraine, was a place where I come for a break um, to improve my health and spending time in steam rooms and also seeing my fitness instructor, a guy called Yuri. So that was that was it. But when the war broke out, Yuri's um uh went straight to join the military. So he is uh, one of my closest friends and I just needed to help. I needed to do something. I was not sleeping. I was looking at the ceiling thinking, what what am I doing here? I felt yeah. So contacted him. He's a very gentle man, very, would never ask for help, but I had to push it onto him. And then he was in the train. You get these messages and the train lasted two weeks. It's nothing. Yeah. Before the bullets mm-hmm. start flying. And then suddenly I've got a message. We really need, can you send me $200? $200. Yeah. So I just instantly sent it over and he said, thank you. We're in the, um, the truck now. We, I've managed to buy boots for the entire company, the guys that were missing, it was hundreds of people with that money and um, and a rucksack for myself. Wow. And that's how much operation they got. And I was just, oh, I, I couldn't believe it. I wish I'd, I wish I'd sent money earlier. I just wish I pushed it on him because he wouldn't ask for it. And then that evolved into, then he vanished, literally vanished for, for months. Uh, and then came back maybe in June, July. And then he sent me a very funny message, <laughs> which is, um, Ziza the Donbass. Yeah. He sent me a message saying, Sanath, can you get me an armored vehicle, a bulletproof vehicle? I was like, I don't think so. Um, he heard someone tell him that it's available in Italy. So the, that, that, that is a conversation when you're in London, you may, anyone could have told you that. Who told him that in the Donbass? <laughs> so I said, no, but we can, it's a, what about a Jeep? And then, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, bought a Jeep with my brother's car. He sold it to me for half price. So very, very kind. Um, loaded it with foods, goodies and drove it over the border and left it there. And then it, it got collected. And then the story evolved. You need a walkie talkies. They had very few left, uh, collected them. A load of people came together for that because it was easy to send that out. So could you spend 200 quid on that? Bought them, yeah. and then a generator and other supplies, and then the Mitsubishi in uh, earlier in the year. It's amazing. Um, thanks for sharing. I actually forgot your question. <laughs> I hope I answered it. <laughs> well, I mean, that yeah. no, that's that's exactly what we were hoping you would you would share. And thanks for sharing it. So, mm-hmm. so how did you go about the fundraising? Because I think a lot of us have seen um, such and such in my in my circle is is ill 
um, here's a just living, uh, sorry, just giving link if you'd like to donate to help them with their treatment or their radiology or whatever it might be. Um, and you chose just giving um, as the site. What was it like to to use that, and and how would you describe that to others who might like to do some fundraising? It's very very simple, uh, very simple. You just write a story, explain what you're, explain why you're doing what you're doing, upload some photos, make it personal, people understand it. Especially if it's if it's an individual that's going through medical trauma, then it's easy enough. Especially if it's a child. But if it's um, a situation with um, faceless people, then it becomes more of a challenge. You have to try and make it. And also, when security is an issue, then it becomes even more of a more of a challenge. Um, just given this platform is simple, I think what was challenging was you can't just post something there and expect people to come and run to it. They're not going to find it. Um, what they'll do, what what you do, what what you have there is the ability to then send that link onto other people, who then forward it to their their networks. But for the most part, you, you have to go and kind of get in people's faces. To be honest, in this in this situation, um, which has nothing to do with the platform. You know, it's, it's about about your ability to fundraise, and and that's about how shameless you can be, to be quite frank. Yeah, and you you were quite overwhelmed with the response in the end, right? And you overachieved yeah. the target and and went out and bought the the L two hundred. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We overachieved on the target. It happened much quicker than I expected. Um, I had to put up about half the money myself, but that's not on just giving. We raised about seven and a half thousand. I put about seven and a half thousand from um, my my savings into it because it. I, I didn't want to target fifteen thousand. Quite frankly, this is me driving this. Um, I wouldn't have been comfortable, like just asking people to pay for something like that. Right? Um, the response was excellent from many areas. Some people gave more than expected. The majority gave more than expected. Some people just there's about two people that vanished. Um, a couple, which didn't surprise me, but on the whole, everyone said yes. But what really surprised me is the people that went on and gave really large amounts, um, hundreds, if not thousands, and some of them I've never even met, right? And then others forwarded, there's two groups, one of them is the Lancia Monte Carlo Club, <laughs> which I happen to have at Lancia Monte Carlo, um, and it got mentioned in the WhatsApp group, and then that day was oh, that was such a day. I was in a bad mood anyway, just not not angry, just a bit down because things were difficult. Um, you never know. I've never done this before, so confidence becomes part of it. And then bang, ching, 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 twenty pounds, thirty pounds, hundred pounds, eighty pounds, ninety. It's like all happening within forty-eight hours, and in that forty-eight hours, you raise a thousand pounds. Yeah, and you're just like, yeah, it just—it's so motivating. Yeah, and that wasn't the only people that did it. There were others as well. That's awesome. And and what were you putting into the van, uh, into the truck? <sighs> oh, right. So look, they need chocolates. Believe it or not, a lot. Because when you go to, um, you have different lines of defense, but when you go to the contact points, you know what I mean, uh, you're going to be in, in position for many hours, probably days. But at that point, you need 
convenience foods, uh, stuff to keep your energy up. So chocolates is critical at that point. Um, we have lots and lots of, of chocolate donations. Hot noodles, we had four about hundred maybe two hundred. I don't remember the numbers. Um, wet wipes. If you imagine what it's like to use a toilet without having um, water facilities, let's put it that way. Australians yeah, would call um, that a shower in a can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of wet wipes. Um, what else? Uh, some some technical equipment, uh, engine parts because there's two vehicles. Uh, there was also the Mitsubishi Pajero that's out there that needs rebuilding every every two months because it gets destroyed and needs to get built again. Tools, a, bo- a toolbox, which I built up for them. But the biggest thing that took up the space was two things. They, um, and this is kind of um, the background to the story, is uh, sleeping bags. So in December, I was asked to, uh, to buy sleeping bags because they had like horrible quilted type sleeping bags that got filthy in the mud and fell apart. It's just, imagine sleeping outdoors in that. And you, you haven't got a warm place to go to after. You're going to get sick. Even if you're in your 20s, you'll get sick. I mean, you may not recover. And then it becomes quite serious. So they haven't heard of something called the bivy bag. Do you, do you guys know what that is? It's, it's basically a, a Gore-Tex liner that you put the sleeping bag into. Like a, a bag that goes into a bag. Um, so we had about 50 of those NATO ones and also uh, British military. So those all came together. I had about 50 sleeping bags. Sleeping bags are very small, but 50 of them. <laughs> so so my Sri Lankan origin certainly helped when stuffing it into, into the truck and, and moving it onto the sides and stuff. Literally, it was quite a, quite a sight. And the journey, if you don't mind me saying this. I was just about to ask about the journey. As the journey went on, I met, I I talk a lot, you know, to strangers and stuff and tell them what we're doing. Also, the truck is very, it looks like a monster truck. So people look and come and ask. And they tell them you're going to Ukraine and say, what can I do? Uh, How about some chocolates? Yeah. And I met a guy in Switzerland called Mark. I remember that guy. He, uh, he saw what I was doing. uh, And he, um, when that moment went and bought a hundred euros worth of chocolates, it was like a two two big boxes. But um, lots of lots of stories like that. You get to get, you get to see the the best part of humanity. Um, yes, due to the situation caused by the worst part of humanity. Due to the worst part of humanity. Yeah, yeah. So you see it from two extremes. Could touch on that a little later, actually, because it has an effect on you. But you're asking about the journey. So the 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 vehicle needed preparation. A lot because it's not it's not like going to Tesco's to fill it up with stuff. It's not even like going to the the uh, the refuse cycle and, and dumping a load of mud or whatever you've got in the back of the truck. This is going over hard terrain uh, all the time. It's been hammered all the time. Even no matter all the preparation you make on this, even the new car will break after a few months. So. We did like cam belts and all these other things, and then some of the sensors and preparation work, replace a water pump, um, full service, but a service where you don't just like tick the box and stamp the, the dealership book, uh, where you take things apart and lubricate them so that the brakes don't seize. Because after a few days in the mud, if it's not lubricated, it will, it will just jam on and then you'll 
in a situation you could be under fire and you've got your brakes are stuck on you can't drive anywhere um built out a winch bar system <laughs> so you've got like this winch that goes on they needed that the, the truck we supplied in september they had to pull the tank out of the mud. <laughs> the tank could just about almost get out, but couldn't quite. Yeah. So, but the Pajero attached to it and the tank together managed to pull this thing out of the mud. But Ollie, um, John, it was a nightmare journey, absolute nightmare journey, because the car broke down twice on the motorway. So, what's the worst? road trip you could do a car that breaks down on the motorway in France oh. where not so many people speak English right so um I didn't do the cam belt on the car this this garage did it in Manchester and they um damaged the sensor and uh sensors are the worst because uh, it's really potluck so it broke down the garage the garage replaced it and it lasted 100 kilometers and broke down again so I'm no, stuck on the motorway no. twice. And then it gets towed away and gets repaired, each of which adds seven days wait time, uh, which in a hotel uh, with food, uh, when you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, taxis, trains ended up costing £1,500. Uh, and then the second time, another £1,500 uh, of hanging around. So that came out of my budget. I paid for that. And so it didn't come out with donations. Um, one night soul destroying, you feel like miserable. But then, and then, um, the first time it broke down, I, this is a funny story, I, it broke down in Utra and I took the train to Garden Royal Station, um, and the volunteers, the Ukrainian volunteers, a mixture of actually, they, they heard about this story and they, they, they were, I was going to them to pick up boxes and other stuff. I was in Garden all miserable, sweaty, not shaved, yeah. Uh, really down, and there's about a hundred odd volunteers <laughs> cheering me like this is welcome. I'm like, oh my god, I certainly didn't didn't feel like a hero, but they they saw it that way, yeah. So that really gave me the energy to, to keep on going. And then the second breakdown didn't help. Um, I get back to the car and then I'm driving it, thinking, expecting it to break down again, but it didn't. I made it to Paris and then I went over to. Um, Swiss base camp where my friend who was a big donor, donor, uh, was waiting for me in Zurich, yeah, and then made the journey and made it to, to Italy. Um, maybe worth explaining why Italy. Yeah, yeah. Why did I go Explain it. Yeah. yeah. So I have a, a garage in the mountains. I, I'm a classic car restoring as a hobby. So I've built out this place where I put my cars and also workshops. It's a really good facility. It was always a plan to take it to Italy, uh, pick up more donations, but also go, go on to do that, that really deep service wow. that the vehicle needed and also strength test it like crazy. So I was off-roading a lot and also drove it up a mountain, <laughs> right up the mountain to the top of um, one of the uh, to, to a refuge which was a, a challenge, but what was a bigger challenge is driving it down um, because it was, was oh, I went up a ski slope, basically. So when you go down the ski slope, um, you need to know what you're doing. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> so I basically went down the ski slope, sliding sideways, and uh, 
I was thinking if I roll this vehicle now, where everything's working, this would be an <laughs> absolute disaster. Um, and then um, for the second part of the, the downhill trip, I did the only thing a man could do. I, I crapped myself and got my friend to do it. <laughs> it's mad. Yeah. yeah, you have to select the low, low, low gear, which I didn't even know where it was. You know, And then you, if you touch the brakes... Uh, then it's game over. You oh. go sliding instantly. And if the car goes pointing in the wrong direction, you're supposed to accelerate to get it pointing in the right direction, not not brake. That uses that's yeah. very counterintuitive yeah. when you're going down a, a steep mountain. Yeah, in the yeah. Did you make yeah, it? Yeah. But I ran away and got some bills to it. <laughs> did you, did you yeah. make any sort of changes to how much load um, the vehicle could take? Yeah. It was more defined already, but we put on much heavier-duty springs, way, way heavier-duty, because of what happened with the vehicle we supplied in mm. September. They loaded it with so much stuff, and guys on the roof, the whole thing was like going down the... the um, on a very rough surface, like the front wheels are almost off the ground. So, on that circumstance, a standard vehicle would break, as, as it did on this other vehicle since September, the Pajero Jeep. With this vehicle, which, which is a pickup truck, we ground clearance is yeah. everything. So it had a body lift kit on it, but not enough lift on the suspension. And the suspension wasn't heavy duty. So um, lifting it further and putting heavy duty springs on it made sense. Um, putting a winch on it, which it's not designed yeah. for, then chopping up the chassis. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it's probably this new new front bumper system, which came in as bits of metal, then welding it all together, and an integrated winch system, um, special lighting for oh, when yeah. um, independent lighting, because you can't, you have to be able to switch on and off as you need. Everything breakable will get broken when you've got a bunch of guys jumping in and out of it uh, at, at speed. And things like lock of wheel nuts need to be like located, like velcroed into the dashboard, so that no one accidentally takes it out. So it's specific; oh, you know, it becomes a specific action. Wow. Uh, what about what the else? tires? Just thinking of it, because oh yeah, yeah. The tires. The tires actually came with the vehicle oh. wheels. That's part of the reason I did that because it's they're heavy duty mud tires. It's not essential. You can get a mixture of tires, but what what that gives you is uh, um unrivaled um, capabilities in very muddy yeah. conditions. Because even though the ground dries out, it's not gonna, I think we're going to get to October without a rainstorm. <laughs> we are. <laughs> there will be rainstorms and it will be loaded, it will be miserable. They need super performance for tyres. But what is not so obvious is the wheel size make, basically means it soaks up the bumps. Mm. It doesn't go into the potholes as much, and it rides over the bumps much more easily. Wow. Sounds like an amazing vehicle. <laughs> yeah. It's actually... Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. uh, yeah, uh, sounds a lot a lot more stable than what you see on the... Or was it Top Gear when they used to modify the trucks and the pickup trucks or that? So. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it is perfect. And I got a video back from the, the, um, the commander... Um, 
pretty much screaming in joy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My friend, Yuri, he was like, ah, this is amazing. The Pajero that we sent in September was awesome. It was wonderful. He was saying, but this is like a different <laughs> level. The power and the weight just goes over the bumps. You can just go banging through the, through all the mud and all the other stuff. And we've got this massive ball bar in the way. So a little bit like chariots of fire <laughs> wheels. So then you wait to knock it out of the way. Yeah. That's a little nudge. Yeah. So what about the last leg of the journey? So you're out of Italy. Oh, that was, yeah. Uh, well, you hope that all the problems went, but they didn't. So, um, I, uh, left Italy and then went northeast, uh, to, towards Vienna, um, hoping to get to Krakow that night. <coughs> in Poland. And that, yeah, in Poland, yeah. So that road is punishing because it's like a mountain road up and down, uh, left, right. And it's really brutal on the, on the vehicle and also your concentration. It started developing a knocking noise on the front suspension. So I had thought that the front ball joints on the suspension were actually good. Ball joint is like your wrist. That's how it operates. Um, the fluid had gone out, just like the wrist, if you, if you have problems, right? So it was knocking like crazy. And I was thinking, oh, God, how am I going to get the parts? Why would it work? Do I take this to Ukraine? Do I and then eventually I had support from friends, uh, ex-colleagues, actually. They started ringing around. Uh, they found me the parts um, in, um, in Vienna, Mitsubishi Genuine Parts, which I'm not interested in fitting anything other than a very good brand or genuine. After my experiences with the electronic sensor. <laughs> um, and then I went to pick it up and the, and the lady there, Marlene, I remember her, but she was so helpful. And I was explaining what I did, I'd done. And she said, you know, if you can't get a garage, you're not going to get one within 24 hours. I'll be busy for a week or two. Why don't you go to the hobby workplace around the corner and do the job yourself? You're a mechanic. So I went, I went around there. They, and it was amazing. It was just so, the guy said, no, 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 you can't get that in. I said, I'll do it on the floor if I have to. And he said, okay, fine, no problem. And I started dismantling the suspension, uh, ran out of tools, went to a shop next door, which happened to be run by Ukrainians. They gave me extra tools and extra products. I loaded more oils and more <laughs> other stuff onto the truck. Just squeeze anything in any which way you can. Um, and, and I managed to break my hand, I think, in the, in doing the job. You have to hit suspension with a hammer really hard to separate it. But you needed the system, which I didn't have. So I managed to, um, you can see that big bump. Yeah, you can. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was about five weeks oh, wow. ago. <laughs> I couldn't move my hand for, for a while, but I finished the job and I was so happy. And then, yeah, I was in pain, but, um, when you're happy, it doesn't really matter. Okay? So managed to continue the journey on to Krakow. Um, Actually, was it Krakow? No, it was the next place after Krakow. You don't ask me to pronounce it. Uh, next town after Krakow. That's all right. Um, That's all right. Stayed there. It was so nice, though. It was, I didn't, I've never seen Poland. And really, this whole journey has been about see, seeing our home in a way that I never saw it before. We're from Europe, or we live here now. Uh, it's the great European plain. This huge savannah that exists from France all the way to the Ural Mountains in, uh, in, in, uh, which border Siberia. It's a huge flat area. 
that, that goes down south and the, the mountain ridge you get with the uh, Pyrenees, the Alps, and all the Dolomites, etc., and the Tiroler Mountains in Austria. So it's really a, a journey along there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And what about coming into, um, into Ukraine? Yeah, so this is something that was worrying me how it would be because I was thinking the lawlessness might cause an issue with foreigners. So I'm an ethnic minority. And in the past, Ukraine's gone through this journey of um, understanding what foreigners are like and not necessarily... I've been, always been a little bit afraid of them, but there were some right-wing sectors here and there. So I'm worried that the country had gone much further that, in that direction because of the past 15 years, it's been going in the opposite direction, right, for sure. Uh, I've been visiting Ukraine actually for 20 years. Um, uh, and I was just shocked at what I saw. They, they were so happy to, to see the support. The country's changed fundamentally, which I didn't realise until I spent some time here. Um, again, um, once they saw that I was donating for the military and a lot of the stuff was for civilians, um, don't know if I told you that, but it's not, it wasn't just military, it's also civilian. There was a lot of medicines, for example, a lot of general foods, uh, stuff for babies, things mm-hmm. like that was donated. Um, I, uh, they just ran out to help me, literally. They came out to help me. They, they walked me to the customs place. Uh, they, the customs officer filled out the form, what could have taken and usually takes several hours to go through because of the bureaucratic <laughs> system <laughs> non-computerized and being on the border with EU. It's not exactly great with after Brexit, but it's a lot worse on the Ukrainian side. Um, I was done and dusted within two hours and they didn't even ask me to unload everything uh, to check it because they should have done. Right? They just ticked off as yeah, all sleeping bags, nothing else. Really welcoming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that journey that story has gotten better and better and better. Uh, just more of the same as I've travelled through the country to get here. Um, as soon as you leave the EU, then you're in the wild east. The, the roads become terrible. Uh, there's no health and safety, really. Yeah. So you have a motorway, which is single lane, <laughs> and no barrier in the middle. So if you get a truck, you have to overtake it 80 miles per hour. Yeah, and there's lots of trucks. And the bit goes around a corner. No one's thought about maybe chopping down some trees so you can see around the corner, things like that. So, um, stuff. But then that's the appeal where you're not being pampered and it, it's, it's not sterile where they're trying to remove all risk. You know, life is full of risk. You're all mortal, right? Um, you can't remove it all. Not with health and safety and not with insurance. There will be trouble at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when I got here, I got hugged and kissed by, um, grannies <laughs> <laughs> and people <laughs> who were so like, especially now that the country has changed. Like before you speak Russian in, in Kiev. Now, no. You know, maybe they still speak Russian, but they're in the, on the face of it, they don't say "spasiba" or "please" or "thank you." They say "dziękuję," so it's Ukrainian. And they'll ask you how you are, but not in Russian. "Kakadela," they'll say "yakspravo," which is sounds a bit more Polish, right? So the country has become less acceptable to just speak what what we call the enemy's language, I guess. Mm. Yeah, uh, and the acceptance of foreigners is 
because I heard the stories about how people were treated badly on the trains if they tried to leave, and those stories are real, obviously, but I didn't realize. But the actual reality today is something very Yeah, different. I think um, I was watching, um, I think it was a, it was a news, um, sort of a news piece on that, because the, a lot of um, Ukrainian refugees have come to the UK as well. And a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff on the trains has, has had some sort of effect on on residents in in the UK of sort of ethnic minorities. But there now, but I think it's just the understanding that there's not a lot of ethnic minorities in that part of the world, so there's not a lot of contact, if that makes sense. And obviously, if there's if you if you don't if you don't see everything, something every day, or see a type of person, or see see somebody you know who's Asian or black every day, then there's an apprehensive because you don't understand, you know, you don't understand them, or you have no previous knowledge or, or perceptions of, of of the culture mm-hmm. and whatnot. But um, yeah, there's workshops being spun up in the UK, which is kind of like just okay, you know, they may look different, you know, we, we look different or whatever, but it's still, we've got the same culture, same, you know, general, we're all in Europe, we're all essentially all. Europeans at this point, you know, so it's um it's quite interesting because a lot of things have changed. Um, and yeah, and, and I think, um, I think I've seen, I've seen a lot of stuff on that as well, um, in terms of just, just the, it just shows you how much um, a country or people can change by just allowing you know that sort of integration or, or you know just being around different people yeah. and I think it's pretty it's pretty good and from a Kiev perspective I've been an ethnic minority now in Kiev I don't see any Asians I used to but there are still a few handful of black people mm. still around uh, and they're married or yeah. whatever um, <laughs> but very very few just a few there used to be a lot more um, just to that's something related to that. So I was just trying to buy a train ticket and I forgot to do it. Because <laughs> I used to take Uber because I'm spoiled Westerner. Because <laughs> it's so cheap. A 20, a 20 minute ride here costs 2,050. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that puts it in perspective. Yeah, it puts it in perspective, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can be a sport Westerner um, in that sense. So I went to try to train and I was I was just like a baby. I couldn't, I, I'd forgotten everything. And, and then machine wasn't working properly. I was trying to select English. But they have an oyster system here, so you have to top of your card. So I forgot that, right? And then the guard came to speak to me, and that would never happen before. He he came to me. He can't speak any English. Um and he wasn't afraid to try and help me just because there was a language barrier and the colour difference uh, is we're at opposite ends of the extreme in many ways. And he wasn't afraid of that either. And then he said, oh, right. And he, he basically said, do you have a car? He said to me, Ukrainian, do you have a, a bank card with a visa or something? Oh, then, oh yeah, they have contactless. Forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, I mean that, that is a nothing story. Maybe but it is something. Some, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's yeah, it shows, difference. It shows. Because they would never have approached me for two reasons. Firstly, I'm a little bit different, a little bit scared. And the second reason is they're embarrassed because they can't speak the language. Mm. Or... They are afraid to talk to someone if they can't speak the language, whichever it is. So it's a quantum difference. I think that's the case with a lot of people and um, dealing with um, with travellers and foreigners yeah. anyway. Definitely the um, last. Do you want to... Because I've, I've, I've experienced that as well. <laughs> Visiting different places, um, you know, yeah. in the countryside in France being one of them. And um, it was quite interesting because when they realise I can actually, even though you speak the language so well, oh, right? Just about now, but not it's in, right now. I'm a bit bonjour, 
comment ça va <laughs> you know but um yeah it, it was it was it's kind of um it's kind of interesting when when they kind of realize because when you're communicating with your family in another country you're speaking english or your own language or whatnot and then there, there's always that reluctance to approach you to as to whether or not you can actually speak um that language too so yeah it's uh... <laughs> yeah yeah we we get that in italy with my my partner because she's um, she sounds, not only does she sound Italian, um, when she speaks Italian, she sounds Roman. And, uh, because so many years spent there. And, uh, and people just don't expect yeah. it. You know, she'll be walking <laughs> along, talking, talking in, in the Queen's English and then just switch. Um, but coming back to, to Ukraine for a second, um, Seneth, um, something I wanted to ask you is, and you've already touched on it a little bit, but overall, how has, um, how has Ukraine changed? since before the conflict to now and and how would you summarize to those who only get mainstream media updates like me um what's really happening there and what might happen next i think the country is so shocked at foreign that's the big thing uh ukraine has been their history has been uh, not integrated with the west obviously um because it's on the other side of europe and other things but because of the Iron Curtain, they've had uh, the 20th century was entirely close to foreigners, so they still call you a foreigner, right? Um, but now they're not so they're not so afraid. But also, it's the help that we've given, right? They a lot of military help. And those stories we don't. I don't know all the details, right? Those aren't explained to us. But those stories come back from the guys at the front back to their families, which is all across Ukraine. And we hear these stories about foreigners come to help. You go through the city in Kiev, and it's full of people like me that donate vehicles. <laughs> yeah, it's saturated right-hand drive cars, left-hand drive cars, land cruisers, uh, pickup trucks, all these things. They're all, like, bodged together, painted green. <laughs> and there's, like, an army of them, literally an army of them. And that's just this place, yeah. So... That is something that has greatly shifted perceptions. Many more people speak English now, which means they spoke it before, but they didn't were shy to do it. They they speak it not the most common language in the world is bad English, I suppose, but um, uh, <laughs> but they're not afraid to do it, and it's, you can actually communicate, yeah. And they'll say things to you which are not even English. So have a nice day. That's more American, right? At the end of the conversation, right? Enjoy your meal. So, you, yeah. Whereas in the UK, we're like, yeah, eat that restaurant. You don't like it. There's millions of other customers. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So that is definitely a big shift. Um, but there's also um, the country is definitely closer together. There is. From my perspective, and of course I see the world through my eyes, part of the reason they really are happy to see foreigners, a lot of people left. And um, Zelensky said something, which I think he directed more towards men than he meant to. He's the president, right? Yeah, Zelensky. Yeah, he said, um, Ukrainians that have left are Ukrainian citizens, um, but Ukrainians that stayed are is Ukrainian society. And a lot of my Ukrainian friends that have left, the vast majority are female, and many had to look after old parents and stuff. So it's not a place where you can do that. And you got to remember back in those days, 
24th February until around April, we were expecting Russia to overrun the country. And, and that would have been a disaster in every way. You see how they prosecute wars. You've seen that on the, on the news. We, we, we make our mistakes. We don't prosecute them quite the same way. Um, let's leave that subject. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> um, a very fair way of putting it, to be honest. Yeah. We make messes. We've, we've certainly had our follies in, in, in the 20th century. But I also think that America's really learned from that. Uh, and our involvement, we're not going to do that anytime soon because we've made a lot of mistakes in the 20th century. Many, many cases caused, <coughs> um, uh, a lot more damage, but it was never a policy of our governments to, to cause that, to do, to prosecute war with those kind of human crimes, um, being the standard standard that would have hit the news and it would have been um anyway it's a different subject well just um, just going back to something know. picking up on something you said there i get the impression that there's no longer the expectation that russia is going to overthrow the um overrun the country is that is that what you're seeing in people no they they even if they did overrun the country they were still lost maybe take 100 years they they like they like the british and um there are other countries in the world that like that. They just don't have a word. They have a word for surrender, but they don't know what it means. Mm. So they're not going to surrender. They're not going to go and spend their, um, their life. Yeah, you can overrun them, but uh, then you'll have enemies all around you. They're, not, they're never going to surrender. I think of it a little bit like a, an uber-successful sports team, and the supporters are just yeah. so used to winning that they can't. they don't know what to do with a team occasionally beating them, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, could well be. You asked me a question about how people have changed and how I've changed, maybe. But people, even though now in Kiev, the war feels very, very far away, and life here is so wonderful, right? Especially during the days. Uh, with most of those are food. I'm in the centre, so everything's... I don't have the door to go and get food. I'm confused because I've got so many choices. Yeah. I guess if you, it's like scrolling through a delivery. I don't know what I want. <laughs> I can choose anything. Um, the, the supermarket's full of food, uh, literally stuffed. You can get everything you want. Uh, uh, so I cooked a curry the other day. Yeah. And uh they had all the spices, they had uh, everything you wanted, including Mr. Salt, oh, which wow. is part of my magic <laughs> <being> parent was <laughs> Yeah. Was um, in the uh international the Worcester sauce. <laughs> yeah. So on the surface of it everything's fine until until you start talking to the people, yeah, where there's a lot of fear uh, about the drone strikes scare. So tell us tell us yeah. about that. So 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 how Without being too morbid or taking us too deep down that no. that side, um, the world has changed, right? It's not it's not a um, a plane flies overhead and um, and some missiles hit a building. It's a bit different now, isn't it? Technology has changed. Yeah, uh, very very different. Though that old warfare could still be come back uh, if you have uh, more modern fighters. This is a critical part of warfare. We just haven't seen it. Uh, here in this conflict, there's no neither had domination in terms of air power. One was very strong air defense, one was strong air power. So that cancels it out. They can't use air power because of their defense, right? So drone strikes became the norm. Um, so when you say drone, uh, I think Amazon delivery, 
or somebody taking scenic shots yeah. over a beach. But these are different, right? These are very different. Those drawings are used for reconnaissance out in the, over in the uh, on the front lines to okay. find where the targets are and stuff, see what's going on. The Shahid drones and the I think they call them Darren drones, the Russian made ones. They are huge. They are about four, three and a half, four meters long, and they're wide. So when you see them flying overhead, they look terrifying. And you hear the stories that they're not that great, they're technically incapable and stuff, but they make horrible sound. <laughs> it's like this this scooter that's lost its exhaust. So it's like a screaming sort of sound. It's scary, and they're big. They're way bigger than you see on the news. Uh, 200 kilos. So even if that doesn't explode, it's going to cause a lot of damage and it crashes, which it does crash every single time. In pieces, usually. Um... But it's a, there's a precursor to that because they really terrorize people. I mean, they can do their air attacks any time of day, right? These things are unguided rubbish, right? So they can try to terrorize the people at 10 o'clock in the morning when everyone's at work. But they don't do that. They'll do it at midnight or 4 o'clock in the morning, every morning. And the air raid sirens go off. And air raid sirens, you've probably heard it, but until you hear it in reality, the way it goes into your gut, it just... I don't know what, how it's built, but it's almost like it, something spins up and creates this huge noise. And that really goes into your, um, really deep inside you and scares, scares you. Does it kind of resonate through you, the, the kind of frequency? Yeah. And then as the thing calm goes down, it creates this ringing noise, like in your head. Yeah. On both ears. So it's almost like it's all around you at that point, and there's no way you can sleep after that. You'll feel so much anxiety. Um, it reminds me of my grandmother, who's uh, still with us, um, 101, um, talking about the Blitz in London and talking about dumb, dumb bombs. And and I remember saying to her once, it's the noise, isn't it, Grandma? And she said, no, it's when the noise stops. Yeah. Because you know something's coming. And they are shooting them down with um, anti anti missile guns. So those are the Patriot systems. Uh, I think they're saving those. They show he's getting shot down with anti anti aircraft guns, anti anti missile guns. But they don't shoot one bullet, uh, one thing. They shoot multiples. And as the thing hits, which it always does in here, it creates a hell of an explosion, and your windows shudder. And that thing could be a kilometer away, right, when they shoot it down. But it, it feels like, um, if it went off now, I would instinctively run in that direction, right, away from the window, because the window's here. It doesn't matter. It's all around for everyone. Um, you just know it's coming yeah, from right. this direction, because over that way is Belarus, about 100 kilometers, 100 miles that way. So the other thing I really wanted to ask you from, yeah. from talking before we started recording is, um, you mentioned that that you've really changed since the start of the invasion. Yeah. I, I lost a lot of my, uh, a lot of, I became a lot less politically correct, shall we say, where I watch what I say. I start to say things much more directly. Can you guys hear me? The internet's going a bit here. Yeah, yeah, we can still hear you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I, recording I start, locally and then going on the uplink, so it'll come out clear. 
Bearing in mind, a lot of last year I was spending in the West, in, in London or Italy, so I was not uh, facing immediate, imminent danger. Uh, and I started to lose a lot of that. Um, the stuff you need in order to um, function in the company, I would say. You know, <laughs> manage politics, things like that, <laughs> for example. It's, it, became, it became meaningless for me absolutely meaningless um i became rougher i would say as a person in some in some areas um but also became resolute in like singular in my what i was doing because the majority of my salary last year was spent on helping people so it wasn't i've told you about the journeys and stuff i was also sending money to different refugees Stuff and a lot of them are friends, and then a lot of them are like PhDs. They have four or five houses here, living off rental income. Yeah, but that's meaningless if you're in the center of Paris. Yeah, thousand dollars is not going to get you anywhere <laughs> at all. So, uh, helping them, um, uh, yeah. So, those are the main like softer changes, but also, I'm having conversations with a uh, commander and different parts of the military and they, they are they've changed a lot. So those conversations are very, very different to those are conversations about the darker side of humanity. Yeah. Right? Uh, the darkness. And it's all part of humanity, the light and the dark. Over in the West you can't really you can't really discuss those subjects. Um, those things can really cause a lot of anxiety if you if you are having to hold that back and sit on that because it won't manage you at some point use your temper or something like that um those are the things that change the most but but it was also difficult to spend time with people that are having a normal life uh, because um it's not they're doing anything wrong they are doing everything right it's what you're fighting for right so you have like a a, a life where you're worrying about amazon to deliver on the biggest problem is to, to, to is my milk went off a day early and I couldn't get something off the shelf or whatever. Um, all those raiding is terrible. Milk. <laughs> yeah. Those are the sort of problems that you face on a day to day basis when you're in, in, in the West. Not only there are, there is a crisis going. I understand that, right? It just became harder to be there. I'd say I feel much more comfortable here. Sure. And I'm not sure how I'm going to adapt when I come back. Um, I'm planning to at the end of the month. I'm sure it's going to be very difficult, but uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll be fine no matter what life throws at me. Yeah. I think it, what you're describing, it seems to be like uh, you've seen behind the veil or the facade of kind of just, yeah. um, I wouldn't say modern day society, but at least in, in terms of. I think, uh, oh, well, I'll, I'll class myself as a millennial, I guess. <laughs> but. Um, there was a saying when I was... We always have YouTube on. Yeah, when watching always, dinner. always. Don't you, Ollie? Always, always. No, I don't, John. Um, but I think it's a case of there was a yeah. saying going around where it's just like first world problems, if that makes sense. Like you're seeing real suffering. You're, you're, yeah. You have an understanding of the real sort of the darkness that could that can exist and does exist. And to come back to, you know, essentially, you know, not to... There are other um, theme parks out there, but Disneyland where, you know, there's a nice facade and everybody's, you know, moving around, but you really know, you know, that there's there's stuff that needs to needs to get done. And you don't you probably don't necessarily have patience for 
<laughs> for a lot of the the fluffy stuff in terms of the day to day um kind of you yeah. know yeah, um it includes conversation with my family as well yeah. those are the harder ones because you walk away from conversation with friends but um, my my niece is getting married in, in a month or two and um it's really important day but I have a different perspective on importance, but it is yeah. important and it's somehow connected with that place harder. I've been to Bucha and Turpin. Um, those places have now been cleaned up more or less. But uh, last week I was down very, very close to the front. And then the stories of how people have been uh, lost children because of that. And also the disrespect that has been shown towards women uh, in particular. Um, you're, you're with those people because you can't escape them. They're there right there and uh those things kind of become very very um normal actually which it shouldn't be normal i wish i wish there didn't need to be armies i wish that people like me were extinct and uh, uh we, it was unnecessary and i think that this is probably one of the stepping stones that we have to go through in order to live in that world but it's not going to be next next generation um, maybe in a few hundred years' time we can leave these violent ways behind us completely, but definitely not now. Uh, what do you see? Them. What do you see um, coming for the people of Ukraine in the next year or two? I think that um, well, it really depends on the counteroffensive, but it also um, it's not just Ukraine. This is much bigger than Ukraine. Yeah, we we see this as two Soviet states um, fighting each other. The Russians don't see it that way. They see it as a fighting NATO. They are real chat. So if the counteroffensive goes well, then you could see the end of the war very quickly. And that could happen very easily. I don't think they have enough weapons for that in the West. Uh, they've never done combined warfare ever in history. Whatever. If, the, if it goes well, end of the war, whatever happens, you're going to see a stronger, more united Ukraine than ever before. Probably in the next decade, uh, maybe 15 years, um, a leader in the post-Soviet space is in like East Europe. So countries like uh, Poland, Bulgaria, where there's still a lot of manufacturing taking place, um, those countries become expensive. right? So um, eventually you'll see Ukraine take over those manufacturing capabilities because they're very, very strong with their manufacturing capabilities already I, so yeah i just hope yeah. that um that the end is in sight for people you know and they can return to yeah to um an aspect of normal life and and rebuilding their country um they deserve it yeah they've held the line now right this is as far as russians can go they their capacity um so we shouldn't be seeing more buckwoods uh, more urpins, more ditches. You know, we shouldn't be seeing that on a large scale. So, Kravikorsk and Kravina and Sovyansk should be able to survive without being destroyed. Okay? So, that is good news. So, the destruction should be at the end. But what is not so easy um, is that that's coming at the cost of a lot of soldiers. Okay? Um, and these guys are very bad. Some of them have never. may not have been with a woman, you know, may never have climbed a mountain, or may never have uh, swum in an ocean, right? 
maybe the Black Sea, if they're lucky, but maybe not, right? And those those things I've done in my life, right? So you know, I've had a life, but they haven't. And yet they're making the ultimate sacrifice. I, I, that mentality is so... It's incredible, isn't it? So, yeah, it's incredible too. And, and you're not going to see that that's, those benefits of those things. And, and a lot of those benefits will be seen out in where we live, in the UK and Italy, because we don't end up having to go to war with Russia as a result, because they will, they wouldn't have just stopped here. So I see a very bright future for Ukraine, actually. Uh, they've just got some EU um, bureaucracy to sort out that we can join. Um, a lot of the um, uh, refugees will come back. They're going to bring back new ways of thinking. Um, the diversity you get in, the, in, in these countries, Western Europe, um, both in the ethnic diversities, but also diversity of thoughts, which is part of it, diversity as well. Uh, diversity in terms of foods, you know, the way that people communicate. Our mentality is so different to them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, just they, they, that difference of thinking is going to be one of the biggest impacts, I think, uh, in a very positive way. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing all of your experiences. It's, um, it's sobering, but also inspiring. Good on you and all the people yeah. that have got involved and um, and purchased some chocolate along the way. Yeah. it's, it's I, I'm the front man. I'm the guy that makes it happen, I guess. Uh, but it would not happen without support. I don't have endless money. You know, I'm out of work now. I've been for several months. I'm not sure which direction I'm going to go in, actually, whether I'm going to go back to work or just... just um, Carry on helping for this the summer because this is the most important summer of my life. Um, ties back to what you're asking, how I've changed. Uh, I've done jobs and I've given committed so much to them in, in my life, and sometimes they've dominated every aspect of my life. But I've never felt like I've done anything as important as this. Uh, I feel like I'm changing something in the world, and it's not that I. Or my ego that needs it. You know, it's just that this is something that I'm, I, as an individual, is not for. It's not for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did I, I'm not sure I explained that correctly. I'm not a hero. Yeah. I'm not fighting. I'm not in danger. Not really. You know? So that's those those guys are the heroes. For what they do. Shall we? Have a quick journey into your favourite section. Jonathan. Oh yes. <laughs> so this is our this is our sharing section. So this is where we kind of ask you um, a number of questions, so our listeners can get some insight into the mind of Sanaf. <laughs> so it's. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good idea. <laughs> So it's a quick fire round. So I say quick fire round. I like saying that because I, I used to hear hear it on the game shows. But hey, here we go. Um, so we'll start off with a few questions. The most, probably the most difficult, I would say, um, which is, who do you uh, most look up to in the world? Uh, um, my father and my mother, I'd say. My father... Uh, they both influenced me tremendously. My father taught me that 
there is no no. There, there is just it has has to happen, and there was an emotion and anxiety, just whatever, knock all obstacles out of the way, and make it make it real. Yeah, and I'm very much my father's son. So, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, second one is what book or film has most inspired you recently? Mm. Okay, there's been many, but in terms of films, I recently watched American Sniper. So, what is what I really learned from that was the psychological, um, and it was a little bit of an insight into what I'm going through as well, but also an insight into what my close friends are going through. So that really, I wouldn't say inspired me, but it gave me, I reflected on it a lot. So I really paid a lot of time, spent a lot of time thinking about it. You don't shy away from focusing on the issues at hand, do you? I think when I was younger, I also saw some ugly stuff in Sri Lanka, and I got, um, I saw horror and horrific stuff. And I, I'm, 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 I wouldn't say comfortable, but I'm, yeah, okay, comfortable with it because I see light and dark as all part of one human species. It's everything that's ever happened is part of human nature, and I don't run away from those. Ugly things. So it, 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 depression is not something, or anxiety, or horror, or horrific stuff. It's not something that. Um, um, I can look at it and, and see it without it necessarily being something I need to run away from. These are horrible. Not the right words. Um, but if you're not able to deal with it, then it becomes an enemy. Yeah. And, and, and it uh, yeah. Then, you, yeah, then you have to be positive all the time and smile all the time, which um which I do it most of the time anyway, but, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Um, next question. <laughs> I couldn't think of a segue to be honest. <laughs> but um uh what are some of the projects and movements that um, have you excited right now? Uh, projects and movements. Um, let's see, when I see equal opportunities and rights being expressed over in, in places in the world, it actually fills me with a lot of hope. Because those things, I'm so glad that they're there. And even some of them are like getting, um, there's always counterbalances to them. But that is definitely something that I really enjoy seeing because those conversations can only take place when you're in safety. And, um, and I'm glad that they're happening because, and I'm not talking about just ethnic stuff. I'm talking about gender rights. Maybe I don't relate to it. I can't connect with it. Um, but, it is something that needs to be spoken about. And this is the first time in history of the world where you can talk about that without being beaten to death. <laughs> you know, you'd have to hide it and live in shame. You know? And the same thing applies to uh, women's rights, actually, uh, because, say, 100 years ago, it was a very different situation for, for women. 
subjugated and they don't do a lot of things and people sacrifice for that. So it's good to see that. I, I really like listening to those kind of conversations. But also, honestly, I'm also very, very interested in Russian politics. I spend a lot of time studying that and watching, observing that because I, I would love to see, to live in a world where we don't have enemies and we can all be friends and that needs America to let go of its imperialistic tendencies or expansionist things, which it more or less have done mm-hmm. after some of the follies of the 20th mm-hmm. century, but also, uh, um, also our neighbor on the other side of Europe, um, to see how that's playing out. It's not playing out particularly well, to be honest. And the tragedy is that, that Russia is full of good people too, isn't it? And full of interesting places. And, and yes, yes, um, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, yeah I would say. Yeah. yeah, which is a very sad thing really, because in the eighties they idolised democracy. Now they idolise authoritarian rules. So. Anyway, John, you're segueing into something alive. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> the next one will do it, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to ask this yeah. next one, but uh, <laughs> um, what is the one thing you'd like to change in the world? Um, one thing. It's a big thing. I'd like to have a much more balance when it comes to money. Honestly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this should be competent. <laughs> yeah, and I don't need socialism either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's. I mean, like, yeah, I think money balancing out. So the it's a very big topic. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, but yeah, no, I think I think that's that's actually a really fair point. I would like to see. Let me expand on that. I would like to see asylum seekers, refugees, not blamed for everything that goes wrong. The weakest of the most vulnerable that don't have any bloody money to start with are very, very little. And yes, okay, there's going to be people that exploit the system, yes. But also like that attention to be diverted to people that do hold the power, that do have the money, and have a substantial uh, share of the, the world's wealth. Instead of us constantly going down this route of blaming um, vulnerable people for our troubles. The people who turned up and worked really hard. Yeah. And yeah. statistically do. But even if, even if <laughs> yeah. that's another thing that's changed my perspective. It, it's fair enough to say you don't come from this country and yeah. And it's fair enough because you feel you feel like you're under attack. You know, your 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 culture's been eroded. And I understand that. And it's it's not it's not a subject that should be that should be ignored. Um because yeah. But at the same time, when you hear bombs going off and you've got kids or old people you're not going to respect someone saying this is my force to my country. You're going to do whatever to to protect that. Sorry, <laughs> keep it light. No, it's fine. No, no, I mean we 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 wanted to look into this this um this subject and not pretend it's not there, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Um, so we fully signed up for this. And what's what's maybe I could do this oh, one. Well. So what's what's one thing you'd like people to take away from this episode? In this episode, yeah, um, the war is not over, uh, I think, and I know that over we live in safety. Okay, so let me let me start that again. Um, everything you achieve in your life is achieved because of the freedoms that people before you sacrificed to give you. You're never going to know who they are. Maybe the most important people in your in your world were your mother and father who looked after you cared for you and took, took care of and, and, and raised you but they didn't necessarily protect you from danger 
imminent danger, maybe from hurting yourself, right? But there are people out there, when you hear the aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles going off, um, stopping these bombs coming down, there are people that you'll never know that are protecting you and sacrificed. And, you know, we live in a, in a world which has always been messy and has always been dangerous. But we also live in a world where, um, things are probably moving in the right direction, I would hope. You know, those people need to be remembered, you know, not just forgotten. Well said. Freedom comes at great cost. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's not just people holding weapons either, is it? It's it's also people um, healing and teaching and listening and helping, doing what you're doing. Of course, yes. Absolutely. Feeding. And they shape our world in a very important way. But they only get to do what they do if they're no one's gonna kill them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can silence them very quickly. Um so that that is still the layer above um having a safe place to, to live and food to eat and some electricity as well. The pointy yeah. edge of the stick, as my dad would say. Yeah. And we can go into these conversations that are very, very important about quality and changing the world something better but you have to have food on the table you need to have some kind of um, infrastructure in modern life you're not farming the land itself and when yeah. folks overstep their boundaries sometimes they need to be reminded of those boundaries yeah it's it's something that we need to always keep in check and every it, it's never going to be solved this is part of human um, human condition that, that darkness can, is always going to be yeah. part of us. So we need to always be vigilant you know, to, to stop it from getting too out of hand. You know? And the, the path to that is not complicated. It's very easy. Creates some inequality, not really very well balanced funding, shall we say. Blame the poor for that or immigration or whatever, whatever it is, if it's Jewish people or, or whatever you choose to blame it on. And then you're straight back on that slippery road to to um, to war and genocide. And the other side of that coin is is to take a moment to get to know other people and their perspectives and look around and listen and help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. listening um, listening is key as well because and that's harder now than it was twenty years ago because of the polarization that. A lot of these social media platforms create, I suppose, um, the fringes become more vocal and they'd like to shout a lot, a lot louder than the, the blob in the middle that takes yeah. the middle crowd. <laughs> and one hopes that decentralization will, um, will perhaps not remove, but reduce the size of certain fringe perspective microphones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Senna, thank you. Um, and good luck with the transition back to your other home. And, um, and Welcome. it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of speechless, John. Yeah, likewise. Uh, thank you so much, Sana, for sharing. Um, incredible journey, incredible story, and your final thoughts as well. Um, really impactful. So thank you very much. Right, thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Until next time. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, folks. That's the end of another episode. 
and uh, and plenty more to come because we're back in the game, John. Yes, we are. <laughs> Until next time, take care of each other. Ciao.